You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Good day, buongiorno, buenos dias, konnichiwa, bitches, and ni hao. Does ni hao bitches work? Ni hao, ni hao bitches? I don't know if ni hao bitches works. We're going to figure out what comes after ni hao. We'll, um, I don't know, we'll keep kicking that one around the office. We'll figure out what profanity needs to come after ni hao uh, to sound right. But good day. Welcome, everybody, to the Abacabo Cafe. This is the only, as far as I know of, English language Kimagure Orange Road podcast on the whole internet. My name is Jason Almy. I am the host of this particular program, and I want to say thank you very much for joining me. I'm going to be yapping all about the third television episode entitled Feeling Stirred, The Rolling First Date. Originally aired April 20th of 1987, directed by Go Mitsuru Written again by Terada Kenji. We're getting used to that name. Honestly, dude, uh, give somebody else a chance, right? Let somebody else take a crack at this thing. I don't know if there just wasn't anybody else lined up or if he was just pushing motherfuckers out the way and not letting anybody else take a swing. But, you know, come on, let somebody else take a crack at it, dog. We've got a lot to talk about this episode. I I feel like the, the series is definitely on an upswing with these first three episodes, we're noticing with these initial episodes that they build atop one another. We're experiencing some continuity with this first handful of episodes that is not going to be characteristic of Orange Road later on. I'll talk all about some very discontinuous stuff that comes in another uh, several episodes down the line. But right now, what we're, what we're doing is we're having episodes that interlock with the previous episode. It's necessary for you to have seen the previous episodes to understand the context of all of the events of the current episode. I don't think any of these uh, any of these episodes are are completely unenjoyable to someone who's watching them for the very first time. If you've never seen another episode and you just happen to fall into TV episode three, you'd probably still kind of dig it. There's enough going on that um, doesn't rely on the previous weeks that you'd enjoy it. But 
we still we 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 get a lot more from having watched these in sequence, and so um, I th- I feel like we're we're building to like longer and longer episodes. I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I can, but I feel like I have a lot to say about this episode. So let's get cracking. We start with a, a breeze alerting Ayukawa that Kasuga is gazing at her. She becomes aware of his gaze. She she turns to look at him. We get these freeze frame shots, and I haven't spoken about these um, yet, but this is a good place to talk about them. They're they're a very recurring visual throughout the show. And uh, what happens is that the image freezes. It's accompanied by a slight zoom or a little bit of a tilt. The camera will do a little bit of action, something um, a little bit subtle, not too crazy, and then also a black border around the subject will suddenly appear on screen. So it's almost like picture in a picture. It's like a really rapid kind of picture in picture effect. The still frame suddenly is uh, sort of zoomed away from or, or, or sort of closed in on by these black borders. What it does is to frame one particular element of the, of the visual composition for that moment, for that freeze frame, Oftentimes, it's it's uh, accompanied by some type of voiceover, uh, Kasuga's voiceover, as he's realizing something or he's he's um, giving us some kind of information, a context. Maybe it's even like a brief "oh shit" moment. You know, he has a few of those, and it's so it's kind of used for for comedic effect sometimes with those "oh shit" moments. But then in other times, it's used to to sort of highlight something that's going on, give a little context, or give us sort of an aside for this this voiceover information as they do here. So um, the effect is actually kind of similar to like a, a photograph being snapped. We, we have this movement that's going on on screen. Everything's fluid. And then suddenly we have this, this still frame, like a, a snapshot suddenly uh, appears. There's a black border around it, almost like it's being developed, you know, in, in a, a, a dark room or something like that. The subject of the still image it, it framed by that black border, uh, frequently Kasuga, uh, often Ayukawa as well. Not a lot of other, there's not a lot of other subjects that get that that sort of freeze frame treatment, but it does happen frequently throughout the um, throughout the television series. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are examples of other other subjects getting that sort of treatment there, uh, just because it happens so so frequently. Um, and you're going to see it come up, and and I've honestly. I've I've seen people argue that it is it's not the best narrative device. I've seen people argue that uh, it's annoying or irritating. I think maybe it it has a practical effect too in terms of animation. Movement on screen has to be animated. Um, a freeze frame that's pretty easy to animate. You, you only you don't have to draw a freeze frame once. You don't have to draw each frame. Twenty four frames per second. You don't want to draw an individual frame that's 24 times per second that's a lot of drawing for for any element within the image that needs to move during the animation so a freeze frame i think it's a it i think it's a fairly effective narrative device for an aside from kasuga some kind of narrative information or an oh shit moment i think it's pretty effective at doing what it sets out to do so i disagree with the detractors online but then also it has this practical effect for the animators too Kasuga's a complete dope, of course. He fell for it again. He fucking waved at Ayukawa again, and she turns away again, snubs him. Uh, presumably, he thought she would wave back since they ended episode two in kind of a good place. They they had sort of made up, it seems. 
and he thought maybe she'd wave back this time. Joke's on you, Casca. She's not going to wave back at you at school. All right? Don't even try it. Just pretend like you don't know her neither, and just keep your eyes ahead. Look, focus on your grades, dog. She's not going to wave back to you in the middle of class with everybody around. It's just not going to happen. There's too many people. I don't know what the deal is. She's not going to wave back at you. Nobody in the history of animation, Japanese or otherwise, makes a fuck you face quite as well as Ayukawa does here too, right? You got to be careful with these Japanese boys is what I'll tell Ayukawa. You got to be careful with these Japanese boys, Ayukawa. They're prone to jumping off a roof or throwing themselves in front of a Shinkansen or something. You got to look out. Don't be too cruel to the Japanese boys, Ayukawa. Next, we get this kind of interesting scene. They eat a fast food meal while watching girls do aerobics. Kind of reminds me of the scene in Bad Santa where Billy Bob Thornton is, is being this kind of like creepy. He's sitting there eating ice cream on like a park bench watching these girls play volleyball. It's really kind of weird. I imagine the women exercising in the aerobics class realize that they're doubling as entertainment for guys eating greasy ass food. I, I imagine they have to know, right? Unless it's like a one-way if it's like a one-way mirror or something like that, maybe they don't realize that they're being they're like being watched. These guys eating a happy meal is more like a happy ending meal, you know what I'm saying? It's it feels a little on the nose that hamburgers are not the only piece of meat this place specializes in. It's not it's actually not completely unlike Hooters here in the US, actually. It's not unlike Hooters, which is a restaurant that has a similar type of thing. The food is all greasy, it's terrible for you. It's not even really very good. Uh, it's not tasty. It's not, you know, it's just regular old bar food. It's like wings and burgers and French fries and stuff. There's no art to it, but it's got the, the women who are young and buxom and they wear very tight clothing, short shorts. They got the, the, like the long leggings and stuff like that. And I'm guessing these places are owned by the same, you know, it's like a, a single business entity that's allowing the diners in the restaurant to look in on the aerobics class, but also, there's like teenage girls in that aerobics class. You know, um, Kurumi, Manami, Shikaru-chan are all uh, like 13 years old or whatever, like 13-year-old girls. You're not supposed to be looking at that. To me, that's a little bit kind of weird. I mean, it's like one thing if it's a 22-year-old girl working at Hooters. Okay, it is what it is. She's an adult at least. I mean, plenty of room to criticize objectification, commodification of the female body and stuff like that. And the whole that whole dynamic is is really there's criticisms for that but at least we're all adults there but the idea that they're looking at like 13 let's hand out tickets to get these girls to come in and exercise right they're 13 years old you're not supposed to hand tickets out to young girls like that so they can be somebody's happy ending meal that's a little bit uh, a little bit messed up we see Costco kind of he's blushing as he realizes what's going on in this restaurant and he, He's got to have this kind of modest and chaste reaction. So they have to kind of animate him doing that, you know, blushing and, and sort of like looking around like, I can't believe it. He was brought here unaware. He didn't seek this out. It's kind of part of contrasting his character with that of Komatsu and Hata. They're willingly participating in the objectification and commercialization of these women's bodies. They knew where they were going, what they, what that place was about. Kasuga didn't, so he still gets to be the good guy. He gets to be our protagonist. Kasuga even orders milk like a good boy here. It sort of infantilizes him a little bit. The guy's ordering milk. I don't know if that's a, maybe that's a big thing in Japan, but I never ordered milk at a fast food restaurant, especially as a damn teenager. So this kind of, this scene gives a little contrast between Kasuga as our, our protagonist, as our hero, and his kind of dipshit friends. 
His biological urges are the same as theirs, of course. I mean, we're all kind of subject to our own hormones, especially during those teenage years. But he's kind of got this uh, almost like puritanical, almost like he's got this sort of, he puts up this sort of facade, right? As if if he acts a certain way, then it's okay if he does it. So um, he's got to pretend like he's not into it. And that's kind of what separates him from his adult friends, just as they're finishing ordering. We get this kind of pan down the cashier's torso, kind of from her face down to her breasts, and it cuts there. It sort of stimulates that male gaze. It moves from her face down to her breasts. It reveals that she's wearing this leotard to to uh, work at this fast food joint, this hamburger joint. But it also kind of simulates the way Kasuga is. His eyes are falling upon her as it pans from her face down to her torso. And Kasuga even drops the act as soon as they're seated. They start watching the aerobics class. He even thanks them. He's like, you guys brought me here on purpose, right? Thank you. Like he kind of does this little smile. His face kind of goes to animate him as kind of looking down. He's looking all dour and unapproving. And then he just kind of smiles and the face turns into this sort of sheepish satisfaction. He doesn't want to be too overly pleased about the fact that they brought him to this place, but he even thanks him. He, He gives him a little thank you there. And it is here that we are treated to a uh, fine piece of background music. That fine piece of music you're hearing right there. Aerobics on rap. That's just good stuff. That's good stuff right there. That's just classic 80s anime music. I don't know enough about 1980s Japan to say whether or not establishments like this were common enough to be depicted here in Orange Road as if it's like this is the type of thing that happens a lot. I don't know. I don't know. This could be an example of uh, the creators having a certain amount of sexism. They're kind of creating this place for their male characters to go leer at women in these tight aerobic outfits. Or it could be a comment on the casual sexism of this kind of place. I mentioned a moment ago that there's enough room to criticize a place like Hooters for all of us Westerners. We're familiar with this place. There's enough room to kind of criticize this. And um, that could be something that that is going on. I mean, after all, Kasuga approves of the place until he sees his sisters in the exercise class, that is. And he's all good with Komatsu and Hata leering at other people's sisters, just not his. He's he's okay with the place until he realizes, what kind of people come here? Oh, shit. That's my sisters and the girl is trying to date me. Kasanga kind of gives, so he gives this, this sort of virginal nerd act. He sort of also gives that that. You know, he's got to play like he's, no, I'm, I'm a good boy or whatever. When Komatsu presents him with the disco tickets, he's got to act as if he would never have thought about going to a disco. Discos are places that are filled with delinquents. They're bad. But Ayukawa might be there. Now he's in. Uh, he's going to do it anyway. But by pretending that he's disapproving or by outwardly disapproving and, and making these kind of outward protests, it's... Almost like he's, um, I don't know, paying some sort of penance that allows him to to go do it anyway, and it's sort of uh, uh, distinct from from Komatsu and Hata's character. They're not gonna they're not gonna waste any time pretending like they don't want to go to the disco and try to get with Manami or Kurumi. 
the, the fact that Komatsu and Hata are unabashedly enthusiastic about Hooter-style hamburger joints and going to discos while Costco acts shocked, it allows Costco to be functionally um, the same as them while somehow seeming a little bit more chaste, more pure, more like sort of above their more like base. They're following these base instincts and they're really allowing that to bring their behavior down to this low level where he's trying to sort of rise above these impulses that clearly all three of them feel. And what's kind of ironic is that Komatsu and Hata never end up in the disco. Despite being all for it, they stand outside the whole night. Kasuga, he's the one who goes in. So despite being against it, he he gets to have the experience of going to a disco in his teens. Kasuga also attempts to exert control over his sisters by lecturing them over going to the aerobics class. The focus is on how how their behavior affects him, how he will be humiliated by them attending this class. But in the next scene, at least he's aware of his own hypocrisy as he's realizing that he couldn't turn down the disco tickets. What what leg does he have to stand on to lecture them for for going and, and uh, dancing, doing aerobics in front of a whole bunch of dudes eating Awesome Burger? I noticed they called the place Awesome Burger, but it was like O-S-A-M. Like it's not spelled anything like the English word awesome, but it kind of has a very similar phonetic sound. Like if I were to tell you to meet me at awesome burger, you would think I was talking about a W E S O M E burger. Like the burger is just that good. It's really, really good burger. Uh, that's not how they spelled it. That's not how they spelled it with the Kana. That's not how they spelled it. I think there was some English there too, like underneath, uh, on the building it's, it was spelled O S A M. But I think what they were trying to do is to, to phonetically, Describe the burger as awesome. I, I think they kind of botched the romanization of awesome, but I think the, the place is supposed to be awesome burger and not O-Sam burger, as an aside. So Casca is at least aware of his own hypocrisy, and he's aware that he's in some ways no better than Komatsu and Hata, but but uh, he's still going to lecture his sisters and try to try to exert some control over their behavior and keep them on a path that he thinks he's acting in their best interest, but he's being a little controlling. This is a little bit of this patriarchal society. And this is sort of how Casca, despite being much um, much closer in age to his sisters, of course, than, than his parents or his, his parents' generation, he still kind of acts in, in many of these scenes as this sort of older, this sort of um, advocate for the more traditional ways, the more patriarchal ways. And uh, throughout the series, he will butt heads with his, his sisters as a result of his conformation to this uh, patriarchal role of his. And I guess it's not surprising either because he's the male and he's got these expectations. I'm sure there are these social expectations. There are these familial expectations that he look after his sisters in this way. But he's simultaneously disapproving of his sisters going to a disco, but he's also hoping to see his crush Ayukawa there. So this is not the type of thing that respectable girls do, and yet I really hope Ayukawa is there. There's a little bit of dissonance here, and I think he's even experiencing that. He doesn't know, with a push-pull to the disco, um, he's experiencing this dissonance, this being compelled by by this cultural expectation and, and this tradition to guard his sister's virtue, but he's feeling the strong pull uh, to go see this girl who does not conform to the same cultural mores 
that he's pushing on his sisters. So it's it's kind of important that he's pushing his sisters to be a certain way, but that's not even what he wants. He's a modern day teen and obviously he wants to meet up with his crush at a disco so they they can dance and have a drink together and get to know each other a little bit better. He doesn't want that for his sisters though. And so it is there's a little bit of hypocrisy there because he wants them to stay in this kind of um, virginal sort of pure and chaste area while it's okay if Ayuka was there. In fact, I'm kind of hoping to bump into her there. It's a little bit of uh, of a dissonance there, and I think he's experiencing that. Manami breaks the fourth wall to wink at the audience after saving Jingoro's ass yet again. I don't think they pull this stunt too much after these first few episodes, but he's always trying to get away from the family, which I thought was hilarious because he's obviously he's like um, – traumatized PTSD beyond belief, this poor cat. And he's always trying to run away and they're always like reeling him back in. And it's, it's like a very abusive. I almost said borderline abusive, but then I thought that's not even borderline dog. That's just abusive. So this is um, possibly also an indication that she does not intend to obey Kasuga. She winks at the camera when Kasuga gets up to leave after his lecture. So she's kind of telling the audience, like, whatever we, we told him what we had to tell him to, get him off our asses. He, he leaves, he goes to the other room. We're going to wink at the camera because we're the twins. We got the power. We're going to do whatever we want to do. And that's pretty much how it goes. This episode, as well as, as other episodes, they're going to do what they want to do. And they're going to be like, yeah, 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 bro, to Kasuga. So it may seem pedestrian that Kasuga dreams of Ayukawa during his nap. He falls asleep, of course, and he dreams about Ayukawa. In fact, pretty much all of the dreams that were shown that he has seem to be about Ayukawa. I think there might be one or two examples of him having a dream about Shikaru-chan. Um, even one of those, I think, does involve Ayukawa. But we were not surprised to see that he's having a dream about this girl that he's incredibly interested in. Why bother showing us this, right? Why why take up a few seconds of of episode time to show us that he's dreaming of Ayukawa. The key is that the dream images of Ayukawa are of her at school. She's in her school uniform. She's laughing. She's gazing at Kasuga. He's not dreaming about cuddling up to her at a disco after she's been drinking. He's imagining her as a mostly typical teen, a girl her age. He sees beyond her unwelcoming exterior their only interaction this episode thus far has been for her to uh, turn her nose up at him when he tried to wave at her. It shows that he's into Ayukawa as more than a sex object. He's not just interested in getting to know her physically. He likes her as a person. He's really interested in her as a person as well. Um, that sort of further distinguishes him from Komatsu and Hata, which are, the, the, these two are always very eager to capitalize on some opportunity to try to get sex. And it's really very obvious all they're interested in. They're more shallow than he is. This sort of shows a little bit more depth to Kasuga's character and that he he values uh, these people in his life, that he, he values Ayukawa and he wants to uh, have kind of more of a real, I mean, granted, he wants to do the physical stuff too. Of course, but he wants to have this more rounded relationship where there is the physical uh, element, but there's also deep spiritual bond as well. And a, a disco would be the perfect opportunity for sexual activity. So the fact that he's not dreaming about her at a disco and having some sort of erotic dream where it's just very much about her sexuality, it shows that maybe his his the the facade of of chastity of purity that he was 
displaying in the earlier scenes when when Komatsu and Hata dragged him to the Awesome Burger restaurant, it shows that maybe that was a little bit more than a facade. It wasn't just an act that he does have this sort of instinct. His knee-jerk reaction is maybe to to uh, the more like chaste and pure, and it's not he's not thinking sex first and foremost like his cohorts. And we also have here our first bailout Kurumi subplot. There's a few episodes throughout the series where the subplot is we've got to rescue Kurumi. She's portrayed as this headstrong, very willful. It's a symbol of her youth and her uh, membership in this this young new generation of of teens. But she's also naive about how things might play out. She's a little trusting. She's a little naive. This is another symbol of her youth, right? These things kind of go hand in hand. Headstrong, willful. She knows what she wants. She's going to go out and get it. She's not going to listen to anybody. She wants to do what she wants to do. But she's also naive about how that might end up for her and 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 maybe taking precautions to make sure that it doesn't end up wrong. And, and so she's the most innocent out of all the Koska family. Uh, and the others do have to sometimes save her from her own impulses. And I think that does sort of infantilize her character a little bit, even though she's exactly the same age as her sister, Manami, it's, it's very obvious which one is the kind of the older, more mature, more responsible, makes everybody's lunch Manami. And then the one that people have to kind of constantly look out for because of the trouble she's going to get herself into. And I do think that it, it sort of infantilizes her a little bit that they are, they constantly have to go after her and try to save her. Hata, of course, is an idiot for bringing a balloon to the disco. It kind of shows his naivety, but it gives them, it's obviously the, the, they needed that for the uh, visual gag of the, the condom. Komatsu is an idiot for thinking it's a condom. Ain't nobody going to open a condom and just hold it in his hand before his would-be date even shows up. Like you're going to take a girl out to Olive Garden and you're going to wear a rubber like walking into the restaurant? That doesn't make any sense, right? Nobody's going to stand there holding a condom when the date begins. You know, a good evening, Manami-chan, as he shakes her hand. Don't mind that. It's just a spermicidal lubricant. No big deal. And uh, this is kind of the first, this is the first moment in, in the series where I just kind of like rub my temples with my hands and I just say, where the hell are the parents? The doorman welcomes just a, a couple of teenagers into an establishment that serves alcohol. Like, it's no big deal. Welcome to the place. It's a school night, I know. Come on in. You know, maybe you have a drink or two. What are you, 15? Okay, cool. No worries. Koska is about to I and to encounter Ayukawa, just chilling, having a drink. These are freaking middle schoolers. They're, they're like 15, right? I mean, they're somewhere in there. I understand if you're 19 and you look a little old or you got a little, you know, you got a little scruff or something like that. And I just always just wondered, like, there's no way Japan is like this. I mean, even watching this for my first time when I was 15, I was sitting there like, this is no, there's no way. I mean, I know Tokyo's on the other side of the world. I know Japan is a completely different culture. They may not have the same laws as far as young people drinking, et cetera, but there is no freaking way. But that's what expedites the storyline for us. So there's a few episodes where I'm just, where the hell are the parents? Why are, they, why are these kids out doing this shit? Like, no way. But anyway, here it is. That's what it is. That's the dramatic square. That might be some of the 
best BGM in this. Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's some of my favorite. There's some really great background music. There's some really great, just, I don't know. This is like kind of a super generic beat. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I love this song, though. I love this track. Uh, We get to hear it, I think, for the first time in this episode. I think this is the first time we hear it when they're dancing at disco. And um, I wish this shit was playing every time I walked into the club. I gotta make a request. So we see a flash of the real Shikaru-chan when Kasuga bumps into her on the dance floor. I say it's the real Shikaru because it's her it's her knee-jerk response. It's her first response. And uh, it's very harsh until she realizes it's Kasuga. She turns around. She's like ready to fight. She realizes it's Kasuga. She does a 180 on her demeanor. She's suddenly super nice. Oh, it's you. And it's a, it, look, it's a club. It's a club on a dance floor. Like, you're not going to get bumped into from time to time. So that along with her 180 on Kasuga in the previous episode, it just always, like, these things always kind of sat poorly with me for her. I'm sorry, Jason P., but it just made Shikaru seem a little fake to me. I think the point is it's supposed to be that she's young. She doesn't really know what she wants. She's still figuring these things out, sort of how to act and um, what's a good reason to be interested in a guy. I mentioned that in the last episode. So I think the point is that she's not she's not really like fully self-aware as opposed to someone like Ayukawa, who, despite being the one who is whimsical in this in this show, seems to be very much in tune with who she is. She's mercurial, but I think she's she will stick with her values and her principles, whereas uh Shikaru still seems like she's exploring those, like who she is. We get the sense that Ayuko very much knows who she is. And that's one of the things I think that makes Ayuko seem older, more mature, and everybody comments on in these episodes, these early episodes, how much older and more mature she seems, particularly in comparison to Shikaru, who who is going to seem a little bit younger just because she doesn't she is younger, okay? She's a couple years younger, a year and a half or whatever she is, two years younger, but she's um she doesn't have her shit figured out the way Ayukawa does. In the dance, Kasuga describes Shikaru's scent as sweet and lemony as he begins to dance with her. We get this, uh, the third piece of BGM that I'm going to play for you guys. This is the Cheek Time song. This is the dance. Kasuga and Shikaru-chan are dancing now. Shit's about to get pretty real for Casca, unfortunately. The uh, description of Shikaru-chan's uh, scent as sweet and lemony as he dances with her, it could be a callback to the previous episode, some confirmation that Kurumi's speculation was correct about kisses tasting like lemons. It could be also that Casca's perception is tinged with a bit of nostalgia as his memory of her scent is intertwined with how he looks back on that moment. It was a sweet moment, not that it smelled sweet especially. Uh, Or it could be an example of a frequent use of citrus fruit metaphors and analogies throughout Orange Road. So simply, um, there are varying degrees of sweet and uh, tart or sour. So like oranges tend to be fairly sweet, a little bit of tart but something like a grapefruit 
Lemons, limes tend to be more tart, sour, but even still, there are um, you know sugar sweetened beverages, lemonade. Um, there are candies that are made with lemon and lime flavors. So there's sort of this balance uh, between uh, the sweet and sour across these citrus fruits. Um, it's a metaphor for life. These are meant to be the ups and downs of Kasuga's adolescent years. Something else I should add, I was speaking with an Orange Road fan earlier, another fan who, uh, thank you for listening to the episodes. He had reminded me that a lemon also implies freshness, right? Lemon scent. I mean, that's why Pledge that you use to wash your hardwood floors smells like lemon, lemon scented pledge or a lemon scented uh, dish soap, et cetera, that makes a place smell clean. It's something that, you know, your cleaner doesn't smell chemically, like try to give it this lemon uh, scent, but it's this clean aroma. It's this aroma of freshness that's used in marketing, right? So by him saying that she smelled lemony is kind of implying that she had this sort of, um, clean, fresh scent. Again, it's a metaphor for life, her youth. It comes with this aroma that reminds him of this youth and this youth movement. Um, There might also be a tinge of eroticism there too, because as Tim reminded me, there were several works in the early 80s that like Lemon People and Creamy Lemon that were hentai works. These were uh, sexualized in nature adult works in the manga and anime communities that that the authors of 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 this work, uh, like Terada Kenji, uh, possibly even Matsumoto Izumi, would have been aware of the existence of those works, and the uh, thus the lemon metaphor may also be an indication that uh, she smelled arousing to him. That that like being so proximal to her, having her so close, was uh, arousing to him. That it would. It it uh, it turned him on, excited him, maybe in a way that he maybe he wanted to put that more artfully by by describing her as sweet and lemony scented instead of uh, I got turned on when she put her arms around me. But that's probably what happened. Let's be real. And then there's this really quick. It's this very excellent uh, quick zoom out of Kasuga's face, followed by a quick cut to Ayukawa's face. And she's looking rip shit again. She's doing that fuck you look that, that only Ayukawa can do. And then this quick zoom out from her face of her clo- from her close up, which is just this very effective, just one second, two second, really effective way of communicating that there's their eyes locked over this distance across the club, and Ayukawa ain't having it. She's not looking happy. Next, Kasuga is supposed to be having his first date ever with Shikaru-chan. This is the first date he's ever been on. He's never been on another date with another girl. This is going to be it. His very first date. Chance or maybe fate derails him from that. I think it's much more fitting that he have his first date with Ayukawa. Even if it's not really a date on paper, even if it ends kind of badly for Kasuga, it's it's more fitting that he have that first experience, which is, in fact, it is very much like a date. Kasuga witnesses Ayukawa being accosted by that punk she danced with the night before, which is more evidence that Ayuko was only dancing with the guy to, to uh, make Kasuga jealous. Also, the punk guy kind of takes the wrong approach with Ayukawa, very much so, actually. The punk guy assumes to have some claim over Ayukawa, some ownership. She immediately bristles at his presumption that because she danced with him the night before, that he has some claim over her body as such. It doesn't help 
that the punk guys are basically ready to go straight to violence when Ayuko exercises her own agency in the matter. Like, how dare she try to have some uh, control over her own uh, uh, sexuality? That's that's weird. She danced with me, right? She belongs to me. Okay, that's that's the way it goes. And I always wondered too: is like, does it really? Is that is that realistic? Like, I, I'm I'm not saying that. The, the average Japanese male behaves this way. This guy's obviously meant to be part of this sort of delinquent subculture, but like, are there delinquents in Japan that are like, we were going to do this the easy way, but I guess now we're going to do it the hard way. Uh, here, buddy, let's kick the shit out of this broad and, uh, and then maybe she'll date us. It really doesn't make much sense, but whatever. Hey, it, it gives us a chance to uh, see Ayukawa do some more martial arts. These guys think they know who Ayukawa is. She's not the type of girl who means no when she says no. I think that's what the punk guy says. He's like, oh, she doesn't mean it when she says no. So they think they know who she is. They're not interested in her as a person, just her physicality. So, uh, of course, Kasuga's value proposal to Ayukawa is that he's more interested in connecting with her as a person. So it's not just about him being safe as if he's not going to push her for sex. He's not going to push her for sex. He's not going to approach her in the way that these guys do. But that's just enough to get you into the friend zone, right? If you're safe. But again, that doesn't really make the girl want to date you. That just means she feels safe when she's spending time with you. So it's not just about him being safe. I think maybe my first few watch throughs of this, it's like, he's the safe dude. Why would she pick him? But it's, it's because he's interested in connecting with her as a person. He approaches her in a very, um, uh, way that she's not accustomed to that. Maybe these guys, approach her in a way that she's unfortunately somewhat accustomed to and she's used to dealing with, obviously, based on the mastery of the martial arts. Then in the next scene, we've got Ayuko rowing the boat. I don't know if this is significant. I don't know if he's like taking a break from rowing the boat, if Casca's taking a break from rowing the boat because he's all wet or or if it's just, you know, Ayuko wears the pants. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But Speaking of pants, Kasuga kind of misses the point when Ayuko was suggested that he take his pants off so they could dry off. He completely missed the point because he's like, ha, 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 dude, come on. Um, there's there's no excuse for missing that. When the girl says take your pants off, look, advice to everybody out there, anybody listening, anybody watching Orange Road, when the girl says take your pants off, take your damn pants off, all right? I shouldn't have to tell you this, Okay. The consent is there. She asks you to take your pants off. You take your pants off. When the kid falls into the pond, Ayukawa, of course, she's like she's the heroic one with all the martial arts knowledge. She's the one who stands up for people. She's ready to dive in immediately. Kasuga stops her. He wants to take action in front of Ayukawa, importantly. Plus, he's already wet. I don't know why nobody said that, but it kind of makes sense for him to jump in. Like, hey, I'm, I just got wet. I was just in there two minutes ago. I'm already wet. Let me do this. There's no sense in both of them being wet. But I think the important thing here is that it's meant to demonstrate that Ayukawa brings out the best in Kasuga. Kasuga is not especially talented at any one thing, athletics, school, good grades, nothing. He doesn't, he's not especially talented. And on his own, he's kind of ordinary, maybe even a little bit lame, but he's meant to be that. When he's with Ayukawa, Ayukawa's influence drives Kasuga to be the best version of himself. He, he will literally rise to the occasion when he's with her, not so much when he's with other folks. As Kasuga himself states in voiceover, Ayukawa seems so much older and more mature. And it's not just because of her looks. It's not just because she's physically developed in a way that makes her look 
18 or 19 or 20 or whatever. It's that she has this way of carrying herself. She has this sort of outward way of acting that makes people respond to her in that way that she's mature. And Kasuga does not feel as mature as, as he appraises Ayuko what to be. So his own self-appraisal, he, he feels like he's behind and he wants to get up to her level. He wants to demonstrate ultimately that he's a viable partner for her. And in this instance, it works. Ayukawa lends him her shirt. She puts it over his shoulders, uh, puts it over his shoulders herself, right? She winks and smiles at him. Dude's like number one. He's like on the on the podium, like number one. She's putting a gold medal around his neck at the Olympics. At the coffee shop, she's sitting there in, in what's a pretty well-known, pretty famous shot of her kind of leaning on her on her palm. Uh, kind of resting her head on her palm. She's staring at him the way that he usually stares at her. At the very beginning of the episode, when the, the breeze alerted her that he was looking, she was made aware of his gaze. She's now staring at him the way that he was staring at her. She's very receptive. Like This third episode could have been the last episode. She has that great line about the plankton when he asks if there's something on his face because you know he sees her looking at him. And it, it's a really great uh, reference to the fact that you know he's all wet. But she's... She's like appreciating, she's admiring this guy in a way that honestly he could only have hoped for. Of course, he he has to he has to put his foot in his mouth. Um, she even suggests herself that it it must look like they're on a date to everybody around them. So she's absolutely slow pitching underhanded softballs to Costco right now. He still manages to blow this shit up. He really could have ended the series on April 20th, 1987. This could have been the last episode. Alas, for him. Maybe good news for us because we got we got more episodes to watch. I wasn't it, and he didn't do it, and he catches the Japanese cold at the end, and we're going to see more of that. We're going to build on this third episode. In the fourth episode of the TV, I'm going to talk all about that next week. In the meantime, I want to tell you guys all about the Inner Circle Podcast Network, innercirclepn.com. I am a member of the Inner Circle Podcast Network with this show, Avocado Cafe, as well as my other show, Shit Happens When You Party Naked. You can find Shit Happens When You Party Naked on the Team Almy Studios Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Team Almy, A-L-M-E. Please check us out there. Shit Happens When You Party Naked is a great show. It's very funny. I say a lot of really pretty wild stuff on the internet, and um, I hope you'll check it out. Also, check out hashtag no offense show check out simmons and more podcasts check out the hood diner check out plunge podcast check out the untrained eye that's our crew innercirclepn.com you'll find links to all those podcasts we've got a podcast for every day of the week you will never have a boring commute if you're listening to the inner circle podcast network i promise you that i want to thank everybody for listening i want to thank everybody who has reached out and who has told me that they've heard the show uh every piece of feedback you guys have given me i have i've really really appreciated everybody listening to this show uh please give us a um please give us a uh subscribe review give us a review those are super helpful i like seeing those those uh do something good for my heart so if you're listening to the show now as we're wrapping up this episode um go go into your podcast app and give me a little review five stars baby oh yeah i like it and um i'm gonna leave you guys with what do we want to do let's do dramatic square again i love that song <laughs>